this morning is tested by fire the joy of enduring trials first peter chapter 1 verse 6 to 9 in this you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while if necessary you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. I was listening uh, to the radio, I had the radio on in the car as I came down this morning and uh, the the treasurer, the Australian treasurer, Jim Chalmers, was talking about political life and he used a little phrase that caught my attention. He said that... uh, Uh, speaking of uh, spending hours away from family and children, early hours at airports to get to Parliament. and He said, unless you have uh, the pilot light of purpose, you wouldn't be staying in this job. And I thought it was an interesting little phrase. In fact, the ABC commentators thought it was an interesting phrase and they chuckled about it. But what is your pilot light of purpose? It's not that of politics, (laughs) but it may well be the joy of knowing Jesus in the midst of everything that we go through and knowing our salvation. First Peter is a powerful reminder that suffering and trials are an inevitable part of the Christian life. But even amid our trials, we can find joy and hope in the knowledge of our salvation and the grace that awaits us. Now, the context of 1 Peter is this. The audience is that uh, 1 Peter was written to encourage persecuted Christians throughout the Roman Empire. Peter encourages his readers to stay faithful in the face of persecution. He reminds them of their shepherd. Uh, that they are like sheep and Jesus is the good shepherd who will keep them safe and bring them home. And not only that, but they are part of the new body, the church, the spiritual family uh, that have been saved by God's grace. Bruce Wilkinson notes that persecution can either cause you to grow or grumble in the Christian life. Of course, if you grumble, the danger is that you grow in bitterness rather than in joy. It all depends on your response. 
In writing to Jewish believers struggling amid persecution, Peter reminds them of their roots. And if we go back to verse 3 to 5, in verse 3 he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Uh, in the last time. It is this knowledge of our secure position and inheritance that by faith, we can do, as Peter tells us here, to greatly rejoice amid suffering and trials. As believers, when you face such trials, you can let your light shine into the darkness by believing the promises and assurances of God to overcome the natural unbelief of the flesh. That's why the Apostle Paul can say to the believers in Philippi, in Philippians 2, 14-16, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will re have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. So he says, uh, Peter Set tells us that these people, though they are suffering, are greatly rejoicing. And we are, by implication, to learn to greatly rejoice. In this, verse 6 starts, you greatly rejoice. And the word here uh, is a special one that's only really used here and also in uh, Matthew 5 as well. Agaliao, it's not your normal word for, for joy, which you rejoice, which is Cairo. It means to be exceedingly glad or exuberantly jubilant. Sounds like being over the top, doesn't it? But that's what he's talking about, the nature of faith in the living hope that they have. As John MacArthur says, this kind of joy is not based in changing temporal circumstances, but is used of joy that comes from the unchanging eternal relationship with God. Jesus used it in Matthew 5.12, in addition to the more ordinary word for rejoice, Cairo, with that usage, he intensified the meaning of his command to his disciples when he said in Matthew 5.12, Rejoice and be glad, and the King James Version has exceeding glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, with the right perspectives, trials should not diminish the Christian's joy. In fact, they may well increase it, as we're going to learn as we come through. They were afflicted by trials. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. In this refers to verses 3 to 5, which we read before, which detailed the first great truth that Christians joy 
namely their protected eternal inheritance. That's the source of your joy, knowing that you are secure in Christ. As John Piper says, our joy is based on the happiness of our future with God and the certainty that we will make it there. Christian joy is almost synonymous with Christian hope. That's why Peter says in verse 3 that we were born again into a living hope. Then verses 4 and 5 describe the content of that hope. And then verse 6 begins, in this you rejoice. In this you have living, vital, life-changing hope. Our hope is our joy. In 2 Timothy 3, 2, Paul tells Timothy, indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Peter notes for us several things about trials. The first is that trials bring distress. The Greek word lupeo, uh, translated distressed. There was, this was no mid-air turbulence that rattles your plates and spills a drop of airline coffee on the tray. This was distressing, more like the plane is about to go down. That kind of trouble, distressing trouble. Their lives, their livelihoods are under threat. Peter knew this grief or distress well. He uses the same word. The same word is recorded in John 21, 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it says Peter was grieved. He was distressed because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. You see, Peter had let the Lord down. And really at the root of his thinking was, how can the Lord ever forgive me? And Jesus in his tenderness reaches out and gets Peter to acknowledge as far as he could, honestly. And it grieves Peter that Jesus has had to ask him the third time. David Roper notes that Christian faith isn't about stoicism. It's, about, it's acceptable for Christians to feel sorrowful and express their emotions when facing suffering. You know, one of the, one of the great traps I've observed in Christian life is that um, there, there is a dichotomy between tears and joy. <laughs> and some Christians want to put on the appearance, the face appearance, that they're always on top that they're never going under the waves. But do you know the, the beautiful thing that Peter had learned? Was that even when he was sinking, Jesus was there to lift him out of the storm. And uh, we'll touch on that a little bit further on. Someone has written this, God has never promised that we would miss the storm, but he has promised that we would make the harbour. Think about it. He also says trials take various forms. And the word here means many and of various kinds or multicolored or variegated. Brian Salve says this word often used in secular Greek writings to describe the multicolored sheen of a bird feather vividly conveys the idea that Peter understands the diverse and varied nature of human suffering in a fallen world. 
You see, the Christian experience is not a one-size-fits-all experience. That's why the Scripture calls on us to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. It is to share the experience, not to condemn someone for their experience, but to understand the nature of the trials that they are going through. James 1-2 says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You know, when we deal with these joy passages, I know, I've noted that even in uh, courses and things, I've had people say, oh, oh, well, but I can't be joyous about that. Well, we can if we get the perspective and get our eyes on the Lord Jesus and know that he's with us in the storm and that he's going to bring us through, uh, it's a matter of where our focus is. And so Peter tells them, but trials do not last. He says, even though now for a little while. To us, the present can seem like everything and forever, but compared to eternity, it's like a fleeting spark. Kenneth Woost, a Greek scholar, notes that the word used here, oligon, means little, small, a few. It's only a little while compared to eternity. And then a loving God, he says, sees to it that amid the shadows and heartaches and trials, his children have their days of sunshine, even in this life. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18, for momentary light affliction... And when you're in tears because of the grief, it doesn't seem light. But in perspective, he's saying light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And we need to get this perspective that trials serve a purpose. He says, if necessary. In other words, if it be God's will, that it should be so. Bob Deffenbaugh records, no suffering occurs without purpose. God is aware of every tear we shed in sorrow. In Psalm 56 verse 8, he says, David says, You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God observes, and every affliction ultimately comes from him. Psalm 119.75, David says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Peter tells us that suffering only comes to us when the sovereign God of the universe deems it necessary. A sovereign and merciful God who causes, as Paul says in Romans 8.28, all things to work together for our good. Though difficult, we may rest assured that there is no senseless suffering for any saint because it's there doing a work in us. And so he's, Paul Peter says, we are tested by fire, verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our faith is like gold. 
It needs to be purified through fire to strengthen it, making it more valuable, which will ultimately bring glory to Jesus Christ. Kenneth Weiss notes that the word trial, dokimion, means putting someone or something to the test with a view of determining whether it is worthy of being approved or not. The test being made with the intention of approving if possible. And so he talks, Peter tells us, that the trials serve a purpose to prove your faith. Primarily in focus here is persecution rather than life's normal problems. Sometimes we make the little issues of life as though they are big things, but he's really talking about greater suffering, the, the suffering of persecution, that sort of thing. Testing time served to assess and strengthen our faith. When we submit to God, remain faithful to him and willingly learn the lessons he intends for us through these trials, we prove that our faith is authentic and comes from God, produced by the Holy Spirit. This genuine faith, along with its transformative effects on our lives, brings glory to the Lord Jesus. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Christine Wurtzen uh, wrote, wrote a song called The Fire. And it has these lines, I've been through a fire that has deepened my desire to know the living God more and more. It hasn't been much fun, but the work that it has done in my life has been worth the hurt. You see, he says it's more precious than gold. This passage is emphasizing the value of faith in the face of suffering drawing a parallel with the durability of gold. Faith, when it remains steadfast during times of suffering, is more valuable than anything else. Gold, though known for its durability, will eventually perish, but faith endures on into eternity. It likens God to an ancient goldsmith who places crude gold ore in a crucible and subjects it to intense heat, causing it to become liquid. During this process, impurities rise to the surface and are removed, leaving behind pure gold. Similarly, God allows his children to go through Christian suffering, gradually eliminating sin from their lives and purifying their faith from unbelief. The goal is for the character of the Christian to reflect the likeness of Jesus Christ, just as a goldsmith aims to see his face mirrored in the refined material. When it's pure, it shines and and, and it reflects and you can see your face in it. God's desire is for his children to become Christ-like and Christian suffering is one of the most effective means to achieve this transformation and it's to the praise glory and honor may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The main point is that praise and glory are significant outcomes of enduring trials. The faith that has withstood testing aligns with the grand purpose of all creation. 
which is to glorify God. The glory of God is most vividly revealed and magnified when his people continue to worship him even amid profound suffering. Ultimately, faith serves as a testimony, a proclamation of God's worth and character. You know, people in the nations that are per- where the church is being persecuted are being refined. They look at the Western church and say it's very weak. <laughs> it's very impure in that sense. But our suffering is to bring us to that place where we bring praise, glory and honour to Jesus at, the, at his revealing. In verses 8 to 9, he tells them, you rejoice in your salvation. And he gives us a glimpse uh, through this book, through this, these verses of salvation. It's a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been born again into a living hope. Our hope is grounded in the promise of eternal life. It's a faithful inheritance, a a future inheritance. God's grace ensures that we have an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. It is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. You know, uh, Ephesians 1, Paul tells us that he has given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a deposit, guaranteeing the day of delivery, the the day where it's all finally completed. And it's faith in the unseen. Our faith, though tested and tried, is more precious than gold. It leads to the salvation of our souls and to a renewed sense of joy. So he says in verse 8, though you have not seen him, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Only a few believers had the privilege of walking and talking with Jesus when he was on earth. Jesus had said to his disciple Thomas, who came to believe after touching the resurrected Christ, he said in John 20, 29, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. As Kenneth West points out, the Christians to whom Peter was writing were not personal disciples of Jesus, but converts of the apostles. They had not seen the Lord Jesus on earth during his incarnate residence here, either while in his humiliation or at the time of his post-resurrection ministry. And as we were reminded, and uh, I reminded you last week, and uh, I think uh, Colin brought it out in the communion talk as well, for we walk by faith, not by sight. He says of these people, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Uh, In the Greek, it's literally of whom not having had a glimpse These saints loved the Lord Jesus even though they had never had a glimpse of him with their physical sense of sight. Jesus was no less real because they had not seen him. You see, to know him is to love him. To know him better, Kenneth Wu says, is to love him better. 
the secret of an intimate, loving fellowship with the Lord Jesus. The secret of knowing him in an intimate way is in the moment-by-moment control of the Holy Spirit over the life of the believer. Not only do they love him, but they believe in him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him. Though not seeing Christ, they knew him by faith. Jesus had prayed in John 17, 20, the high priestly prayer, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Unlike Peter and the other apostles, they didn't even have the memory of meeting Jesus personally to remember. They couldn't look back and remember his gentle and loving restoration like Peter could to bolster their faith as they went through troubling trials. But they had seen him by faith and not by sight. And he says, you greatly rejoice. And there's that word, agaliao again, with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Exceedingly glad, exuberantly jubilant. Joy inexpressible and unspeakable. And I remember when, we, when I was uh, at the Grace Community Church uh, Shepherds Conference, they had a, a, uh, a chap, and I, I love the way Africans give their children names, particularly Christian uh, Africans. And uh, we had this classical guitarist play for us. He's one of the best that I've ever heard. And his name was Jubilant Sykes. Where do you think mum, his mother got that name from? Right here. Jubilant. Are you jubilant for the Lord? Because that's what he's calling us to. We have part of that glory now because of Christ's presence in our lives. But we also have a part of that heavenly glory in our anticipation. Are you anticipating the glory of seeing Jesus face to face? Think about it. R.A. Torrey says, True believers in Jesus Christ have inexpressible and glorious joy because they know that their sins are all forgiven. They are free from the most grinding and crushing of all forms of slavery, the slavery of sin. They are delivered from all fear. They know they will live forever. They know they are children of God. They are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. God gives them the Holy Spirit and there is no other joy in the present life like the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so he says the outcome of your faith in verse 9 Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. David Guzik notes that the end or outcome of your faith is the return of Jesus and the ultimate salvation of your souls. Testing and trials are inevitable. On this side of the end of your faith, although we do not yet see the God we serve, we must endure through trials and face them with faith and joy. Let's have a look at it, the outcome. Obtaining could be translated presently receiving for yourselves. Believers can rejoice because they are receiving uh, what was promised, namely salvation, the goal or culmination, the end of faith. We are guaranteed that we will receive the crowning fulfillment of our faith, full and complete salvation. At present, we have received only the title to it and its down payment. 
Trials give us a unique opportunity to experience our own salvation. In one sense, Christians now possess the result of their faith, a constant deliverance from the power of sin. In another sense, as Paul tells us in Romans 8.23, we are waiting or groaning to receive the full salvation of eternal glory and the redemption of our bodies. You see the goal and outcome of our faith. Firstly, we note the glory that awaits. Persevering through trials leads to a reward that far outweighs anything we could experience in, their, in this life. Our faith in Christ will one day result in salvation and glory. And it, it, it gives us victory over death. Christ's work on the cross ensures that death is not the end for us. We will live forever in his presence, free from sin and pain. Doesn't that focusing there transform your perspective on the here and now? And we have a heavenly inheritance. Loving and trusting in Christ comes with a guarantee of an eternal heavenly inheritance there we will experience the fullness of God's love and goodness and he says the outcome that the end product is the salvation of your souls knowing that eternal hope and our secure position and inheritance they were re they were rejoicing proving the reality of their faith increasing in love for him and assured of the completion of their salvation that's why James says in James 1, 2-4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know, so often we would like to duck the trial part of the Christian life. We'd like to avoid it. We'd like to put our head in the sand and let's not stand up and risk being... But the work he is doing through these trials is to produce a pure and complete uh, lacking in nothing. James says also in James 5.11, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealing that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. We did a lesson in uh, our course last weekend with uh, uh, Dr. John Barnett uh, about the storm, Matthew 14, the storm on the sea. And uh, if you know anything of that storm, what happens is that it, it's a very poignant time in Jesus' life because John the Baptist has just been beheaded. He's heavy. He's fed the 5,000. And uh, he sends the disciples off in a boat and goes up on the mountain. And, the, and the, mountain, the mountain is Mount Arbel overlooking Galilee. And he goes up there and prays all night. But he's, he goes up, he's not only praying, but he's watching them as they go out on the boat. They're supposed to be going up to Tabgar, but they get blown out to sea by a contrary wind. And he doesn't come to them until the fourth watch, when, by which time they are desperate and they think they see him uh, coming, walking on the water, and they think it's a spirit or a ghost, and, and, and they cry out, and he comes to them. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, 
tell me to come to you and walk on the water. And he does. And while he's got his eyes on Jesus, what's happening? He's walking on the water. (laughs) He's rejoicing. But the moment he takes his eyes off Jesus and he sees the, the terrible waves, what does he do? He sinks. But what does Jesus do? He just puts his arm and lifts, lifts Peter up. The counterside of that story that you may not, and I had, I had never pieced this together that he points out to us. Where does Jesus send the disciples after the resurrection to meet him? He says, go to the mountain in Galilee, which I arranged beforehand, and meet me there. Which mountain is it? It's Mount Arbel, where he had sat and watched the storm. What was the message to, out of that storm experience? That Why did they worship him? Because he was with them. Do not fear, I am, I am here. It's li- uh, you know, I am with you. I, it's literally, I am And so he sends them to the mountain where they had experienced the storm and he tells them there the Great Commission and what does he say? Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is with us in the trials. He knows he's watching just as he was watching Peter. He's watching uh, from heaven. He also has the Holy Spirit within who groans, as Paul tells us, with groanings too deep for understanding. God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit are all engaged in our trials. So if you are not greatly rejoicing, it means one of two things. You either don't know Jesus, at least not very well, or you don't have your gaze steadily, steadfastly fixed on him. Like Peter, when he had his eyes fixed on Jesus, he could walk on water. But when he put his eyes on the troubled, stormy water, the moment he lowered his gaze, he began to sink. But Jesus was there to pick him up. You see, endurance and joy in suffering tell us three things. Enduring through suffering, suffering provides an opportunity to mature our faith. It helps us develop perseverance and leads to spiritual growth. Choosing hope over despair, when we choose to trust in God's goodness and faithfulness even in tough times, we can experience a deep-seated joy that surpasses all understanding and a greater appreciation of God's grace. Suffering allows us to experience the sustaining power of God's grace and teaches us to lean more fully on him. How do we build fireproof? By faith, believe. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And in the moments where the grief is so strong, and the tears never seem to depart, and you feel so weak, then like the father who wanted Jesus to heal his son, as in, uh, recorded in Mark nine twenty four, cry out to him and say honestly, I do believe, help me in my unbelief. Paul Apple notes that fiery trials focus our faith on Jesus Christ, thus intensifying our joy instead of extinguishing it. 
trials and suffering are part of the Christian journey, but they serve to strengthen and refine one's faith, ultimately leading to joy and a future reward in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul writes in Philippians 3.1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. And then he finishes the book again with Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. How do you build by faith? Believe and get by faith, grow in the, the rejoicing that is available to you when you take hold of the promises, when you look at Jesus and see his face that he will lift you out of the storms of life. Let's just bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a living hope. And it is secure in heaven. You've paid the down payment. You sent your Son to redeem us, to buy us back, as it were, to yourself to pay the price of our sin. And then you gave us the Holy Spirit as a deposit, as a down payment, as a guarantee of the fact that we will stand before you and one day see you face to face. Oh, Father, fill us, flood us with the awareness of your presence. When we feel overwhelmed by the storms, Lord, we pray that you would meet us right there and cry, it is I, do not fear. That you would lift us out of the miry clay, as, as King David says, and out of the stormy waters, as Peter experienced, and even out of the grief of having let you down. As you forgive and restore us, and replenish us.